You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, my name is Ryan, and, uh, but my nickname that everyone calls me is Riz, so you can call me that. If I haven't met you, welcome. Good to meet you, uh, or come say hi to me after. But uh, I'm the church planning pastor here at Reality. Got sent out from a little small town just south of Santa Barbara, California, called Carpinteria, uh, where I'm from, and uh, moved out here. And uh, we're like nine Sundays into this new church, and so thankful that you guys are joining us. Um, my beautiful, wonderful wife, Zoe, is the one that was leading worship this morning. So, yep, amen. She's awesome. And so that's us. We have two young kids, a four-and-a-half-year-old girl named Eva and uh, a rambunctious 19-month-old boy named Liam. And they are wreaking havoc in there. Uh, Liam is mostly, probably. Eva's hopefully fine. But anyway, that's us. So thankful to be with you here this morning. Before we get into the Word of God, um, should I just go with this one? What should I do? What can we do? I prefer it. As you know, I move a lot with my hands. Check, check. No, I'd prefer, but I don't have to have. <laughs> don't be distracted, everybody. Don't be distracted. Um, <clears throat> so, I'll just, okay, no problem. So before we get into the Word of God, I wanted to um, give you guys a few resources for this season of Advent. So Advent is a Latin word that just means coming, and It's not a biblical mandate. It's not like scripture says you have to celebrate Advent. But over the course of church history, a lot of churches do this. We're not like going to officially celebrate it. But we might just add some Christmas decorations and start singing some Christmas songs um, during the month of December. But what I do want to do is just make you guys aware of some resources out there. Just on some like daily devotionals you can do. And, And the purpose of it is just really to get our hearts in the right place this season, looking forward to Christmas. Obviously, Christmas is about Jesus. Yes, we do a lot of other things, but it's celebrating the birth of our Savior. And so um, there's two devotionals. Uh, you want to pop up that slide real quick? Um, by Desiring God that, have, that John Piper's put out over the years. I've read both of them, and it's just like two to three minutes every morning on scriptures that are pointing our hearts and our minds towards Christmas Day, towards the birth of the Savior. So they're little tiny books. You can actually download them for free, like PDF, or just have them on your phone, just desiringgod.com advent. And again, you don't have to do it. It's optional. But starting this Friday, December 1st, these, these daily devotionals, that, that, that celebrate Advent start. And so you can just go to that website, download either one of them, and it's just a really good way in light of all the materialism that happens around us to just be reminded from Scripture what Christmas is all about. It's about Jesus. Amen? So feel free to check those out. I'll be doing them, uh, one of them, and, uh, and they're awesome. So what do you think? Troubleshoot? What do you think? Is it working? Oh, God bless you. Thank you, sound team. Matt back there is first day on the board, too, so good job, first day. Amen. <laughs> well, no problem. All right, so let's get into the Word of God this morning. Thank you, guys, for getting my mic situated. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22 is our text this morning. 
So if you haven't been with us, we are going verse by verse through the book of Mark. We're um, just about getting done with chapter 2. We just do about a couple verses each week. But I'm, I usually teach out of the New Living Translation. So this morning, um, Mark 2, 18 through 22 is our text. So um, why don't you join with me as we read it? <clears throat> it says this. It says, Once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting... Some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would be both, both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. This is God's word. Why don't you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for... It being God-breathed and God-inspired, that it's a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. And God, we pray this morning that you would give us divine revelation to what this means for us, for our lives. That we would continue to fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. That we too would not turn to the right or to the left from your word, but that we would receive it just as it is, as your word into our lives. God, corporately, we want to just say that, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you are king, that you are sovereign, that you are in control of our lives. And so, God, we just ask and we just surrender everything to you and say, God, have your way with us. We ask that your word this morning would change us, that it would continue to make us more like you. And if anything, it would equip us. It would show us. It would train us for what our lives are to be like in light of the cross. And so, God, would you give us understanding? Would you anoint this time? Pray you'd pour your spirit upon us. You'd meet with us. We'd hear from you. We obey your word this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's pretty ironic that our text this morning is about fasting. In light of like the overeating that we all just did on Thanksgiving. I'm sure none of you fasted at all over the last couple days. Um, so it's pretty funny that we're in this text this morning. But before we dive into this text, I want to do a quick recap where we've been in the book of Mark. Especially if you haven't been here or if you, know, you just forget where we've been. Um, because context is everything when reading or studying scripture. If you didn't know that, that's Bible study 101, is context. Context is key. So just on a total side note, when you're reading your personal devotions or you're open up the Bible and you can't figure out what's happening, read around the text. Like if you just jump in, you, you know, you do the whole, hey, I want to read my Bible this morning. Let me just open up to here. And you're like, I have no idea what's happening. It's because you just jumped into a story. Or if you jumped into a piece of poetry or you just jumped into a historical narrative and it's really important to read outside of the verses, whether that's the verses surrounding it or the chapter or the book. And so a total side note, context is everything. So that's why there's a danger, what they call proof texting. It's just going, well, this is what this verse means, 
because that's what it says. You're like, well, it's good, but what does it mean in the context of what it's saying? Because it maybe changes the meaning. But all that said, I want to recap real quick the book of Mark. From the get-go, the book of Mark has been about Jesus. It's the story of Jesus, but specifically, Mark is telling it, or he's writing it in such a way to show and prove that Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah being the promised one that the nation of Israel was hoping for that would come and free them from the Romans. This was not only freeing from political oppression, but this was the the Messiah, the Son of God, the one that would come and save this nation that was in distress, the Savior of the world. And Mark, in chapter 1, verse 1, he starts off by just telling us what the whole book's going to be about. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so every week over the course of the last two months, as we've been studying and reading the book of Mark, we've seen that. Week after week, we've seen Jesus' actions proving this claim to be true, that he truly is this promised or awaited Messiah. And we've seen that through healings, right? Him casting out demons and overcoming darkness, him uh, forgiving sins, and, and the list goes on, and it will continue to go on. We see this this man that has amazing authority and amazing ability to heal the sick and cleanse the leper and forgive sin. And at this point, right, at this point in northern Israel, in first century, in the Jewish culture, I mean, people's opinions of who Jesus was were in very different spots, you know, some had, had grown up with Jesus in Nazareth, and for, excuse me, Nazareth, Nazareth, excuse me, and for 30 years, he had just known that they had just known this carpenter, right, Mary and Joseph's son, and he's just kind of a normal guy, but then all of a sudden, his public ministry starts at the age of 30, and so the New Testament, I mean, specifically the Gospels, records those three years of Jesus's public ministry. But a lot of people just didn't know what they thought of Jesus. Some believed, right? Some some believed that he was the son of God. They put their faith in him. Some were just unsure because they're like, dude, I grew up with you. How are you the son of God? You just were a carpenter. I'm not going to say the city again. I can't say it. And some were very much in opposition. What Jesus was doing they were upset about, they were, they were angered over, specifically the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. They were, they were, they were upset. They, were, they, were, they thought that what Jesus was doing was blasphemy, and he deserved not only to be persecuted, but be put to death for what he was doing. And so the opinions of what Jesus was doing was very, it was varied. And last week, the Pharisees questioned Jesus' association with sinners, right? Last week, we saw Jesus call Matthew as one of his disciples, and then they had a little dinner party at Matthew's house with all kinds of disreputable people, right? The outcasts of society. And the Pharisees saw that, and they questioned Jesus. If you're this spiritual man, if you are who you say you are, how could you possibly be dining with these heathen unbelievers? And he responded to them last week. The questions today continue from them to why Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, this this Messiah, 
with miraculous, amazing authority, is not observing this religious act of fasting. So he's not fasting in the way that the disciples of John the Baptist are. He's not fasting in the way that they are. And so in verse 18 this morning, again, we we start off with the Pharisees questioning Jesus' actions once again. It says, once... When, once when Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Right? So if you are so spiritual, then why do you not make your followers live up to your high religious standards? Right? If there's anyone that should be fasting, this very religious act that we're doing... Why aren't you doing it? So fasting in context, just to give us a little understanding of what it was, is, you know, the law of Moses required fasting only during the period leading up to the Day of Atonement. This was the one day a year where the high priest would make sacrifices unto God for the sins of all of Israel. And this is the one time we see in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, that, that fasting was required or should be done. But over the centuries, it had become a lot more customary that Jews would do it uh, more often. In times of mourning, in times of uh, sadness, in times of seeking God, there was a lot more additional times in which Jews began to fast. And by nature, fasting is abstaining from food. And so it's this idea of we are going to stop eating because we are mourning or you're seeking God and we're going we're gonna to die to ourself in this way. We're going to withhold this thing in order to seek God or beseech God for what is happening. Fasting also had become associated with repentance. Like if someone was guilty of a severe sin um, <clears throat> and, and they came to repentance... He would manifest his repentance by fasting. Fasting was a way that he was mourning over your sin. You were broken over it. You were mourning. And so you would fast before God when you came to repentance for your sin. And so there was a lot of fasting going on in first century Israel, especially in in Jewish culture. And what others were doing, like John the Baptist, right? We saw him at the very beginning of the book of Mark. He fasted very, very frequently. He was very religious. He And what he was doing, though, he was fasting in anticipation of the coming of of the Messiah, of the coming of Jesus. But John would would regularly do it. Like, often he would fast. And so they use that as an example. John the Baptist is doing that. Isn't he the one that proclaimed your coming? How come he's fasting and you're not? The Pharisees went even further, and they made it a duty, They made it like a ritual law that you had to fast twice a week. And they did it as a sign of like personal piety. Like we have to do this in order to have good standing with God, in order to keep right and righteous and pure before a holy God. We must fast and it has to be done two times a week. They were very strict and religious about it. So obviously when Jesus, this rabbi that has all these disciples now, it claims to be this, this holy person, this divine person. He's not fasting. They ask the question, like, why are you not doing it? Verse 19 of our text this morning, Jesus replies to them. He says, with, with an illustration or, or a metaphor, he says, 
Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. So in his reply, Jesus essentially told them that there was a time and a place for everything and that this was not the time to fast. There's a couple of things going on. We need to understand this metaphor, so we need to understand what he's saying. One is he used this metaphor of the bridegroom and reminded them of what happened in weddings in that culture. See, weddings in Israel in that time are not like weddings today. You know, usually a wedding ceremony is like 20, 30 minutes. Maybe if you like extend it, maybe it's 45 minutes long, a long ceremony. And then you have a reception, and that reception usually lasts a couple hours. Well, in Israel... It didn't last, you know, 20 or 30 minutes. A reception didn't last a couple hours. It lasted for upwards of a week long. I mean, it was a party. Like when there was a wedding, it was like stop everything, clear your calendars, don't do anything. You can't do anything. You can't work. You definitely can't mourn. You can't be fasting. And so even then, it was customary, customary that any type of fast was put on hold if there was a wedding. Like a wedding stopped everything. Wedding equals celebration, and that's it. You couldn't come to a wedding sad. You couldn't come to a wedding fasting. You just had to stop everything and celebrate. There was lots of eating. There was lots of drinking. It was a celebration, and a wedding was a cause to rejoice. So he says here, do you fast during a wedding? It's like, no, you don't. And his point here is, do you, do you fast during a wedding when the groom is there? In verse 20, he, he uses this idea of groom again. He says, but someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they'll fast. So don't fast now, but there will be a time where you should fast. It's important to note that Jesus was using an illustration of the, the bridegroom. He was referring to himself. See, Scripture uses this illustration a few times. We see like in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is writing about marriage between a man and a woman. He, he compares it to the bride and the bridegroom. And the bride is the church of Christ. Like we are the, the bride of Christ and Jesus is the bridegroom. And he uses this, this a marriage an analogy. And then we all look forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation that after Jesus comes and he restores everything back to how it should be, we have the ultimate party and celebration with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb when the bride and the bridegroom, us and Jesus, are reunited. So this idea that Jesus is the bridegroom is an analogy or a metaphor that's used throughout scripture. And so when in the text this morning, he's using this metaphor of a wedding of the groom, he's talking of himself. He's saying when the groom is present, it's time to celebrate. It's not time to fast. It's not time to mourn when I'm with you, but there will be a day when I am taken away from the wedding feast. And so again, in this analogy, he's, he's alluding to his execution upon the cross. This is the first time in the book of Mark where, where we see Jesus talking about his own death and resurrection. He says, one day, I'm with you now, so don't fast. 
Because fasting is a time of mourning. But I'm here. The Son of God, the Messiah has come. It's time to rejoice. But one day I'll be taken from you and you'll be without me. And so then there'll be time to fast because you're in this time of of mourning because you're not with me and you're looking forward to when I will come back the second time. And one day we'll be reunited, but now is not the time to fast. That's what he's saying here. He's speaking of himself in this analogy. He's telling the Pharisees, he's telling those that are asking this question, you're missing the point. I'm the point, is what he's saying. I'm the point. I've come. I'm here. There will be a time to mourn when I'm gone, but not now. See, fasting is a godly biblical concept. They they didn't have it wrong, but they had the timing wrong and they had the purpose wrong. See, we as believers should practice it. Most of the time we see in scripture fasting as when you fast when you really need to seek God about something or there's something that you just can't do like the disciples went out and they tried to cast out demons by themselves and sometimes it worked but there was this one time it didn't and they came back to Jesus and they said, Jesus, I don't know what happened. We couldn't cast out the demon. I thought we had authority. And he says, these only come out by prayer and fasting. In that situation, The disciples were required to fast in order to overcome the works of the devil. That that we see an example of fasting that way. But most of the time, it's when you really need to seek Jesus or reconnect with him that you fast. And again, fasting by nature is abstaining from food. When you use that time, energy, and and, and, and when you're in your weakness, right, when you feel physically weak, You cry out to God and ask that he would meet you or speak to you or you would reconnect with him. Because fasting is what you would call like a spiritual practice or a spiritual discipline. And so the Pharisees saw it like as a religious act that was required of them in order to keep good standing with God or keep pure or accepted by him. I mean, that's why they did it. They did it to keep good standing. They thought because they had to. They thought that you should, and so you needed to, and so you had to do it. But we have to understand that, first off, you can't earn acceptance from God. And they didn't get that. See, Jesus earned that on the cross for us. Right? We're accepted by God because of the work that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Amen? And so looking even at fasting as an example of a religious act, it's not the things that we do that get us to Jesus. It's but what Jesus did that gets us to God. Like we can't earn our own salvation. We can't like muster up righteousness in ourselves. That's most of the New Testament. Look at the book of Romans. It talks all about how we cannot be self-righteous and attain acceptance before God, but Jesus Christ has done that for us. It's not by an act or how many times we pray or how many times we fast or how many times we even go to church that earns us acceptance from God. Jesus is the one that has earned us acceptance from God. The book of Colossians tells us this. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. It says, this includes you who were once far away from God which would be all of us. We were his enemies. We were separated by him by our evil thoughts and actions. Yet now 
He has reconciled you to himself through, through what? Our works? No. Through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he's brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is the power of the gospel in a few verses. Jesus is the one by his death that has brought us into God's presence. And so do we get that? I mean, when you, when you die, when you cease to physically exist and you stand before God, I mean, do we grasp that God doesn't see our faults and all our failures and our weaknesses. He sees the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And, and literally, we're not, like, like he looks at us as saints, as pure and holy and righteous. And we should really be in awe of that because we didn't do that. Like we didn't, we didn't, we didn't muster up in our own strength this like amazing moral life. We were sinners. But it's the grace of God that saved us. And in response to the Pharisees, you know, secondly... Fasting or any other spiritual discipline isn't meant to like earn you anything. Oh, you know what? Like I feel really good because I gave a lot or like I fasted a lot or I, I went to church like every Sunday this month. Like it, doesn't that like give me you know, brownie points before the Lord? Like isn't my tally pretty good? Like we think of it that way. We're such a performance-driven culture, right? At your jobs or at school or there, anything around us, you have to perform or else, that's, that's what happens in life. But that is not true of our relationship with God. See, these spiritual disciplines, fasting being one of them, isn't meant to earn us anything. It's meant for us to enjoy God. It's not about earning. It's about enjoying. It's not. Like when we fast, we spend our time seeking God so that we can get him, so that we can hear from him, so we can commune with him. When we pray or when we give or when we serve any of these spiritual disciplines, they're supposed to be so that we can be with Jesus. We can enjoy Jesus. Not so that we can like, you know, get gold stars on a report card and feel good about ourselves and like feel like we're good before God. That's not how it works. Like when Jesus died, he paid the price and it, to tell us die, it is finished. Like it's the finished work of Jesus. We don't always have to be playing the, you know, the, the scale card. Like, am I good? Am I bad? Did I do a lot of good works this month? Did I? It's not about that. It's about the work that Jesus did on the cross. And that should bring us real peace on a deep level that we can stand before God and he calls us holy and blameless. And it's because of Jesus. And so in general... Fasting is meant to reconnect or recommune with Jesus. So Jesus' point in this text is, fasting is to get to me, but I'm here. Like, why are you fasting? I'm here. In other words, like, be present, celebrate, rejoice, be joyful that I am with you, because one day I won't be. Right? It's like, it's like talking to someone in a conversation and they're on their phone. Right? You're at dinner with someone and they're on their phone. It's like, hey, I'm here. I know you're looking at my Instagram right now, but I'm here. I can just tell you about that. You can just ask me about my day. 
right? It's like the idea of, of being present is what Jesus is talking about. One day I won't be here, so then fast, but while I'm here, let's celebrate. Or in other words, instead of fasting, let's feast. Like let's enjoy, enjoy me. Some good wind right now, right? Is that wind? Anyway, okay, so verse 21 and 22, Jesus brings in these other metaphors to, to further prove his point. He says, besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new cloth would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. So what he does is he uses these two metaphors that really everyone would know. Every homemaker, everyone that, 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 that drank wine, any, any, any type of celebration, um, if you wore clothes or if you drank wine, you would have understood these metaphors. And his idea here is if a garment has been washed several times and has shrunk, and then if it's ripped, it can't be patched with a new cloth. Because if that new cloth is on there, it'll then shrink and the patch will then tear loose. The original tear will be larger. Like, if you have an old piece of clothes, you can't put a new patch on, because if you watch it, it's just not going to work. And then with wineskins in the ancient world, you know, the standard wineskin was goat skin. And when new wine was put into a new goat skin, uh, the wine would ferment, right? It would emit gases, and they would expand, and they would stretch this animal skin out. And so new wine was meant to put into new wineskins because it could handle, like, that expansion. Like, it worked. You got new wine, put it in a new wineskin, everything will work out. But if you put new wine in an old wineskin that had already been stretched out and had already been worn, well, what would happen is that wineskin would burst, and then you would lose your wine. There ain't no wine bottles at the time. This is how they transported wine. This is how they, where they put wine once they made it. And so Jesus is saying that unless you put new wine in a new wineskin, you're going to lose both. He uses these kind of strange examples, but there's purpose to them. He just tries to draw people in. Jesus does this a lot with parables. He uses very common physical things in their lives to try to teach them a spiritual point. So that's what he's doing right now because it would have caught everyone's attention. At first, they might have been like, fasting, bridegroom, you, me, I don't understand. But when he said, hey, you know that garment you have, that old garment, if you try to patch it with a new garment, what happens? Everybody's like, it rips. And then like, hey, what happens if you put new wine in an old wineskin? They're like, you never do that. It bursts. It would have immediately drawn their attention in, and they would have said, yes, I understand what you're saying. Now tell me what you mean. One commentator, R.C. Sproul, said it this way. He said, with these metaphors, Jesus was saying, in essence, you cannot take the new and force it into the old structures because the old structures cannot bear it. He was not condemning the Old Testament law of God. He was condemning the traditions that had developed among the scribes and Pharisees. He was warning them that their king had come and that they would not be able to deal with this king unless they got rid of the structures that made it impossible for them to receive him. Something so transcendental. How do you say that word? Transcendental. 
transcendentally? Something so transcendentally? Yeah, like, okay, new. Had happened? Sorry. <clears throat> Something big had happened. Some divine big thing had happened. New. Had happened, and they could not receive Christ into their lives without being made new themselves. It would be impossible to be a Christian and keep the old ways. So he was speaking into these Pharisees' traditions, specifically of fasting, because that was their question, right? Jesus, why aren't you? Why are you, right? This is like the third time now. Hey, you can't forgive sins. Hey, you can't eat with sinners. Hey, why aren't you fasting, right? They're just pointing fingers at what Jesus is doing. And Jesus says, you are missing the whole point, and you will never be able to receive me unless you, you, you kind of kill or are done with your traditions. See, Jesus, he did not come just to like reform us, but he came to regenerate us. Like he didn't come to just like improve us and make us better, but he came to make us new, like to make us new creations. And that's true like on a personal level, that's true on a, a corporate level, that's true of religious systems. What Jesus is saying is that I did not come to just make you better, I came to make you new. You can't just add me. You can't just patch me like an old garment. You can't just put me in an old wineskin. Like I have come to make you a new creation. I've come to do something far bigger than just you adding me into your lives. And that's, that's what he's getting to here. That we can't just add Jesus to our existing lives. Right, or our existing schedules, right? Because I think some of us do that. Like we come to faith in Jesus and our whole life is good. Like we work and then we have our personal time. This is when we go to the grocery store. This is what I do on Saturdays. And so Jesus, like I'll give you some Sundays a month. Like you can add to my busy schedule. Some of us think that way. What they were doing is they were saying, well, I already have like, I, I believe in God. I have these religious acts that I do and I need to keep them doing. And so I don't know what you're doing, but I don't know how it's going to work to add you into my life or my religion. Another example would be like, hey, you still, you're Buddhist, but you try to just add Jesus to it and kind of mix it. Or you're just a moralist and you're like, yeah, Jesus has some good morals. And so I'll take some of his and I'll take some of Buddha's and like, I'll just kind of mix mash it together. And just, that's my life. That's my belief system. And in a lot of ways, the Pharisees were saying, I've got kind of my own thing going, and so I don't know if it really meshes. I'm going to maybe give and take maybe some of the things I like, but a lot of it I don't. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. And his point is, if you do that, if you just add me, if you just try to take some of me, well, then your Buddhism is going to be junk and your Christianity is going to be junk. Or if you're a materialistic person and you're just like, hey, I'm going to add Jesus into my already materialistic life, then you're going to have this tension of like, oh, I don't want to like really do that stuff. But then, oh, Jesus kind of contradicts me here, but I really want to like live for myself here. Both are not going to work. That's his point. You try to add Jesus to uh, another religion or to another schedule or to your existing lives, it's not going to work. And a great example of this would be Paul. Paul was the most zealous Jew there was. 
He was a super Jew. I mean, he was born on the right, in the right tribe. He was circumcised on the right day. He was trained. He was discipled by the best rabbi in Jerusalem. I mean, his life was like the model Jewish life. He was so zealous about it that he, he, he persecuted Christians over it. I mean, he would do anything for the Jewish religion and Jewish beliefs. He was as religious as it got. But when he believed and put his faith in Jesus, he just didn't add Jesus. It changed everything for him. Right? He wrote this letter to the book, um, excuse me, to the church in Galatia. And he said this about himself in response to coming to Jesus. Galatians 2.20, you guys all know this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Like, I died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What does Paul say here? Well, I just added Jesus to my already religious lifestyle. No. Well, I just made room for Jesus but I already had kind of a good life and it was already working, so I just added him. No. He says, I have been crucified. Like, as if I was on the cross with Christ. Like, my life is no longer my own. Nothing is my own. It's all Jesus's. And so when I came to know him, everything changed. He also wrote his second letter to the church in Corinth, and he described it this way. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any one of us is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Like everything has come under the lordship and the rule and reign of Jesus and everything should be transformed to become new. Now that doesn't mean that it happens in a moment. That's where this word sanctification comes in. It's a process that happens when we come to know Jesus and we come under his lordship and his rule and his reign. We should, when we, when we give our life to the Lord, we should believe and come under Jesus the way that Paul did. Like, hey, my life is no longer my own. Like, like I'm, I'm the Lord's now. Like, he's my Lord, he's my master. It's not about me anymore, it's about Jesus. And what should happen is that our lives should start to transform into his image. Because when you give your life to the Lord, there is something that happens in the spiritual realm. Like, you have been justified before God. You've been made righteous Right? And so if you died that day, you gave your life to the Lord, and that day you, you die, you stand before God, God sees you through the lens of Jesus Christ. But over time, our lives are to become like Christ. We're to become new creations, like the old life has passed away. That's why if you grew up not knowing the Lord, and people knew you one way, and then later on in life you get reconnected with those friends or those family members, and they're like, dude, who are you? Like, you're not the same person. You used to just be all about yourself and selfish and not care about other people, only what you can get. Now you're giving and gracious and loving, and now you, what happened to you? Jesus. Like, that, that, Jesus changes us. It should change everything about us. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you, you have to fully do everything in your life different, but it all should come through the lens of Christ, under the authority of Christ. We should, we should think differently about everything. We should have a different worldview, a different outlook. We should have a different, uh, different motives, different priorities. That all comes with Jesus changing us. And the truth is that Jesus didn't come to just patch our lives up. He just didn't come to patch our life, but he came to bring complete newness to every part of us. Everything should come under the rule and reign in Christ and his lordship and his leading. And no area is to be off limits. And I know that can be really scary and really vulnerable. But we aren't supposed to just add or compartmentalize Jesus or time manage Jesus. Because that's what we do with everything else. And we, we have to kind of, for our lives to kind of function well, we have to be able to time, time manage. We have to be able to compartmentalize. We have to be able to budget. Like there's all these elements of life that you're not supposed to do with Jesus. Don't give Jesus a budget to your time. <laughs> like, don't time manage and compartmentalize him. He is to be your all in all, your Lord, your Savior, your everything. And so there's no area that you're like, Jesus can't have that one. You could have all this, but I'm going to take this. And that's that vulnerable surrender that he's talking about here. That I'm not here to just patch you. I'm not just here to have some of you, like, you were designed to be with me and for me to be your Lord and your Savior and your God. And that means the entirety of your life is to be mine. And I think this can be one of the hardest things to do is just to fully allow God to rule in your life. Because it's one thing, right, to believe. It's one thing to make that profession. It's one thing to change your life in practical ways. Like, oh, I go to church now and I, uh, you know, I, I serve or I give or I do all these religious works now. But it's another thing to say, God, all of my money is yours. It's actually not mine. It's all yours. Money's the hardest, hardest one for the heart. The Bible talks about it a lot. But then there's time. Jesus, all my time is yours. My dreams are yours. My priorities are yours. And that's where I'm sure now we're all in one way or another by God's loving kindness convicted of something in maybe areas where we've not given them uh, those areas to the Lord. Or we've not entirely allowed God to be God over everything. And maybe we've just patched or compartmentalized or tried to just add Jesus. And so I don't know, you know, using Jesus' metaphor, I don't know what your garment or wineskin may be, right? His analogy is you can't just add me to this or you can't just pour me in that. But I'm trusting that the Lord has or will show you. And the reason why he's showing is because he loves you. Uh, the Lord loves those who he disciplines, the book of Hebrews would tell us. Like, he convicts us. He, he corrects us. It's because he's a loving father that really does know what's best. And I know that we as earthly parents, we're like, we know what's best. And like, well, we, we get it wrong sometimes. We get it wrong a lot of times maybe. But God never does. He created us. He knows us. He knows what's best for us. He knows exactly what we need. And so when you hear something like this and you feel like God's conviction or God's leading or there's something that you feel like, oh, man, like 
I haven't surrendered that to the Lord. Or I haven't given that to the Lord. That's like your heavenly father saying, I, I want more of you because I love you. I, w- I want more abundant life for you. I want you to experience more of my joy, more of my blessing. But I need, but I need all of that. I need all of your heart. Let me in. Let me take that. Paul also would say that what it means to follow Jesus is what he said in Colossians 3.3. He says, you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this idea that comes up that Jesus said to his disciples, he says, you want to follow me? You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross and follow me. Like, stop living for yourself and live for me. And so the questions that I think we should ask ourselves this morning is, will we open up our life entirely to God? Like, will we allow him to be Lord and be in charge and him to take the lead? And when we die to ourselves and follow Jesus, right, in the same way that Paul talked about. So I just challenge and charge you to, to allow the word of God to speak into your own life. Allow it to give some heart examination. Spend some time really saying, hey, are you truly like, like Lord over all things, Jesus, or am I just compartmentalizing or adding you? Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a gracious, loving, compassionate Father, and that you're our creator. You're the one that made us. You're the one that designed us. And as the designer, you know what we need and what, and what makes us tick. You know that the, the deepest recesses of our heart. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to, have, to give us the strength to surrender this morning. I mean, to give up, to allow you in. God, we just say sorry for the the ways sometimes that we've just maybe tried to patch you into our life or like add you and not allowed you to have everything. Show us what that means, God, practically. Like show us what that means on a very practical level or whether it's uh, something in our hearts or something that we're doing. We want We want you to lead us. We want you to be our God. We want to walk in this newness of life that you promise as new creations. So we ask, God, that you'd continue to do that. You'd restore and redeem and heal and set free and continue to make us more like you. And so help us, Lord, to to do that in our time of worship right now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.